0: The following audio is from The Springs Church. More information about The Springs Church is available at thesprings.cc. Well, one point of connection that we discovered quickly when we came is that Brett is from South Dakota, and my husband is from South Dakota. So Brett, I don't know where you are, but all the church in South Dakota now knows that I'm speaking where you preach. So word goes out quickly. <laughs> I've got a lot of messages. <laughs> so that's, it's sweet to see all those connections that happen in the church. <clears throat> um, I first want to thank you, Kelly, for bringing me here, inviting me. And John and Kelly have been tremendous hosts and carting me all around And um, while I've been here and got to spend the evening last night with two of my nephews who live here and we're OC grads. Um, they're both engineers uh, with Tinker Air Force Base, and so I went out to one of their homes and his wife cooked us a meal so it's been a sweet time to be here and reconnect and see how OC has grown and um, so again thank you for having me. I want to start with a story that I started with yesterday. <clears throat> at, um as we did our retreat uh, because this animal we call contemplative prayer is new to a lot of us. Um I grew up in the church. I'm a PK. Uh um my dad was I guess you could call him a missionary in Canada, although he never considered himself a missionary but was supported by a church in Texas. So I'm a PK, MK, you know, all those acronyms. Um, But growing up in the church, it wasn't probably till my 30s that I learned about this treasure of prayer and spiritual disciplines that have been in the church for centuries that I had no idea they existed. And that was such a grace to be able to be exposed to all these different ways of connecting with God that weren't even on my radar. So that's what contemplative prayer is. It's a lot of these practices. And as I said in class this morning, it's the listening side of prayer, where when we typically pray, we talk, you know, we bring our intercess- intercessions, our praises, our confet- confessions, our laments. But there's another way of prayer that's called the listening side of prayer. And so that's what this whole weekend has been about, as I've been uh, with some of you folks yesterday, is talking about this way of deepening our relationship with God. And that's I do a lot of this, and I love the opportunity to share this stuff with people. But the story I want to tell you to start with kind of for me encapsulates what it is. (coughs) So a number of years ago, I was teaching at Lipscomb in their seminary a course called The Theory and Practice of Prayer. And um, it was a week-long intensive for our ministry students. And the first day was kind of my day and I had talked about contemplative prayer and it was new to a lot of the students. And one of our students, he was a little bit older than some of the others, but um, his name was John, and he was a mountain man, uh, just the uh, stereotypical, long handlebar mushroom, <laughs> mushroom mustache, um, big cowboy hat, you know, boots with the spurs on even, and um, a plaid shirt. and You know, when you take off the hat, there's that tan line that starts about there. And just a lovely, lovely person. And what he did in Nashville is he worked as a teacher in alternative school. So for the kids that were in trouble and couldn't stay in school, they were sent to him and he did such good work with them. And he liked it because he liked working with the kids, but he liked that he had the summers off. And he would always go to Montana and supply preach for the little churches you know where these ministers would never have a break so he'd fill in all over Montana and fly fish of course on the side so it was a a double blessing for him but um, he and his wife had horses and mules and they would take in rescue mules you know like rescue dogs and cats and those types of things but but they would do mules. And one day a man brought to him a mule called Tiger. And he was called Tiger because he had some white stripes on some of his legs. And when the man brought him, this animal, this poor animal had been terribly abused. And when they found him, he was mean, mean, mean. And the man said to John and his wife, Vicky said, I don't know if this is going to work. He said, it's going to either kill you or you'll kill it. <laughs> this is not a nice animal. And, and John and Vicky said, well, we'll give it a try. You know, it certainly doesn't hurt to try. So they took it in, and it, you know, it was, it was tough, because at first it would fight with all the other horses and mules, because it had, was used to competing for the little food that was given to them. So... Um, he didn't trust the other animals and fought, but after a while, that relaxed, and he started to trust the other animals and um, be a little more friendly, and, but would have nothing to do with people. So when they would come out in the corral, he would go way to the other side and almost press against the fence. He wanted to get as far away from them. So at the time of the class, this was two years after they had gotten tiger, And his behavior had stayed that way the whole time. But um, so then back to the class, so we'd had this um, long intense day on contemplative prayer and that night John went home and he couldn't sleep. He was wrestling with these ideas and trying to make sense of how does this fit in with the prayer I know or the way of being with God I know. And so middle of the night he went out to the corral just to um, relax and think a little bit and be with the horses and mules. And so he was out there about two in the morning and he threw a, was throwing a blanket over one of the horses and all of a sudden he felt this nuzzling. And he thought it was one of the mares that was just a real sweetheart and she was always loving on the other animals or people. So he looked, turned his head to look, and it was Tiger. And something clicked that after these two years, suddenly Tiger realized, I can trust him. And he just wanted to be with John. And John said, the whole time I was out there for that two hours, Tiger never left my side. He just wanted to be with me. And John, and then he said, that's what this is about, isn't it? That's what contemplative prayer is. It's about just being with God. Don't have to say anything. I just drink in God's presence. And that is the best description of what contemplative prayer is. It's this being with God, leaning into God's embrace, letting God love us, where we're not setting the agenda. You know, where we're not deciding what's gonna be said. We're just being with God and listening and sometimes God has something to say to us and sometimes God just wants to love us but it's about carving out that time to be with God in a way where I can create the space for God to reveal himself to us. So that's what contemplative prayer is. So I want to spend a little bit of time in scripture looking at the practices of Jesus we did a little bit of this yesterday, but I want to go to Matthew fourteen twenty-three. And in Luke, you know, we looked at a few of the verses throughout the Gospels yesterday that showed Jesus often went to a lonely place to pray. You know, he would get up early and go pray, be in solitude. He would spend the night in prayer. He would stay up late and pray. He often went... Luke 5.16 says he often went to a lonely place to pray. So in Matthew 14.23, well, let's start with verse 12. So at the first, so this is a day in the life of Jesus. At the first of the chapter, it is describing the beheading of John the Baptist. (coughs) And, any beheading, you know, a few years ago with ISIS, you know, we saw some press on beheadings, and it's just awful. But to have someone you love be beheaded, you know, just the trauma of that. And I had read through this chapter many, many times and not really got the significance of that. Because John the Baptist, in relation with Jesus, not only was he physically related, his cousin or his second cousin or whatever we call that. But he was his forerunner. He was his baptizer. He was probably the only person on earth who really got what Jesus was about or as close to it as possible. His disciples didn't get it, probably not till Pentecost. His family didn't get it. They thought he was crazy at some point. So John was the only person So to lose someone in this horrible way, not only who was a family, physical family, but also a dear friend was a terrible emotional blow. So verse 12, John's disciples came, took his body and buried it. Then they went and told Jesus. So we look at what Jesus did. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot. So Jesus' first inclination was to go to a solitary place. Why? I think he wanted to be with his father. He'd had this terrible emotional blow. He wanted to be encouraged, sustained, filled up. But, as often happens, life ministry happens. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed the sick. So he tried to get away, but people found him. And when Jesus healed the sick, you know, it wasn't one of those, you all are healed. Jesus dealt with people individually touched them, talked to them, gave them, we talked in class about the gift of significance. He saw them as valuable and so interacted with them. So when it says he saw a large crowd and healed their sick, that took a while. So this blow at the morning, then this long day of healing then, as evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, "This is a remote place, and the crowds away, so they can go to the vi- villages and buy foo- themselves some food." And Jesus said, "They don't need to go away. You feed them." Then they had the feeding of the five thousand. Another thing that probably wasn't a quick fix. They passed, sat everybody down, passed it out, then gathered it up. So more time in this long day. Number was 5,000. Verse 22. Immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. So finally, finally, after this long day, Jesus was finally able to get away and be with the Father. So I, I share that with you to share that Jesus' first inclination when he had a blow like that was to try to get away. And When we talk about solitude and silence, it's solitude in terms of other people, but it's really about being with God. So Jesus' inclination was to get away and be with the Father. And when life happened, when business happened, that delayed that, his first chance, he did it again. And so that, that shows me that this wasn't something, you know, Jesus' quiet time where, okay, I'm going to force myself to carve out an hour in the morning or a half hour, and I'm going to do it, whether it kills me or not. Um, it looks like Jesus looked for opportunities to be with God, to run away from the crowds, from the busyness of life, and just soak in the, the love of the Father. And another thing I was sharing um, yesterday, so forgive me all of you who are here who are hearing this twice, but we had, a number of years ago, we had a program called Growing Deeper Spiritually. And people would come to Nashville for a week, and we'd just have in depth immersion in the spiritual disciplines. And in the middle of that week was a um, day of silence. And one of the men in the group, he was just, he really wanted to incorporate these practices into his life, but he had a busy life, and it was just hard. And so right before we went into silence, he said, why is this so hard? Why does it God make it so hard for us to be with him? And then we went into the silence. And after, as we were processing it um, the next day, he said, God gave me an answer. He said, when I was a kid... Um, my older siblings were at school and it was just me and mom in the house and he said she would be cleaning or watching tv or something and I would go around and look for that warm square of sunshine on the carpet he said I would curl up in that and I would watch the dust particles (laughs) and he said that's what this is it's an invitation isn't it He said, God's not shaking a finger at me telling me you have to do these disciplines. He said, it's this invitation into his warm embrace. And that's what it is. It's this time with God is for our benefit. It's certainly not for God's, although I know God enjoys being with us, which is amazing. The God of the universe wants to be with me. So we accept that invitation and we find the time in our lives to be in silence with him. And Henry Nowen has written an article about another day in the life of Jesus. And the article is called Moving from Solitude to Community to Ministry. And he takes the day in the life of Jesus in Luke 6. Um, So let's turn there. So Jesus again has spent a day with the people crowding around him, listening to the word of God, um, talking to the crowds. He was dealing with um, lots of of different things. But on chapter 6, in verse 12, it says one of those days Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God and then when morning came he called his disciples to him and chose twelve of them so an instance where Jesus spent the night in prayer and then came into community with that important decision of um, choosing those twelve disciples and then together they went out again and uh, verse 17, stood on a level place, and they started ministering to the people again. But Nouwen's point in this is that sequence of events. He spent the night in prayer, he went into a community, and then they went out to minister. And his point is that often when we have an idea for ministry, We jump on it, we start it, we invite people to join us, rally the troops, and then we pray. And now, and of course, is saying, let's turn that on its head. Let's start in prayer with God. So not only does that ground what we do, but it also determines our identity. He said, because when we spend time with God, we come to know that God loves us and our identity is grounded as a child of God who loves us. So then when we move into community, we're not tossed to and fro by the opinions of others, by when people don't like us or what we're doing, um, criticizing. We're grounded in this love of God so we can be with people in a non-reactive way is what we say in the therapy world. And then, together, um, we go out and minister. So this progression can only happen when we first start in solitude. And then, as again, as we move into community, not only are we grounded in love, but we can love our community more perfectly. And I say perfect, lightly, just in a a way that's a manifestation of God. And one thing I want to share about um, being in community and loving them away is understanding our body. And sometimes we can have um, less grace than we want to, but... Being in community, in a faith community, is really a way that we can live out our relationship with God, is through bringing Christ to each other. And I'm always a professor first, so I have to have a whiteboard. But um, Urban Holmes, one author, has talked about different ways that we experience God or relate to God. And one of these ways is relationships. One is prayer. One is intellect. And one is social justice. So when you look at the body of Christ... We all have some of this in terms of relating with God, but we're going to lean in one way or the other on these. So, for instance, if someone's um, primary way of connecting with God is through relationships, they're going to be the ones who are, every time the door is open, they're there. Any kind of party, any community, any thing that involves connection. You were talking about connection earlier. That's their first way. Prayer, these people are going to give me a journal and a tree, and I'm connected with God. Just leave me alone to pray. That's my best connection with God. Intellect, I want to study. I want to get into the world. I want to word. I want to share ideas. I want to discuss. And then finally, social justice, let's be out with the homeless. Let's go to the soup kitchen. When I'm serving the least of these, that's when I feel most connected with God. So again, we all have some of this, but we're going to lean in one way or the other. And Often when I do retreats and talk about this, I'll take a vote and have a, people choose their first um, their, mo- their best way of connecting with God, and then their second way of connecting with God. And the larger the group, the more balanced it is when we take a vote, because we all relate to God in different ways. The beauty of it, though, is that we're all the body of Christ. But what happens sometimes, you know, if this is my primary way, I'm thinking, where is everybody? The church is offering this. Why aren't people here? Because we're expecting people to relate like us. The next one, if everybody would just pray, the problems of the world would be taken care of. Social justice. Jesus said to take care of the orphans and widows. Why aren't people more invested in this? Or intellect. We have to be more in the word. Um, We have to be studying. And so sometimes we can err on the side of not giving grace to our community because everybody isn't exactly like we are. But the beauty of knowing this is that I can accept you in your way of connecting with God and we can complement each other. And the church can be built up as we relate to God in different but complementary ways. And then, as I know, you know, and back to what Nauen was saying, as I recognize how I am loved by God, and that is the core of who I am, and then I can love the body and give grace to the body, and we're all doing that, just think of the power as we go out into the world and minister, as we serve as instruments of God's love and healing, in a hurting world so that's that's the premise of um, living lives of unceasing prayer where not only is what we do in a formal sense prayer but we live lives of being with God and being an extension of God in the lives of the people around us. So I believe the praise group is, needs to be coming up at about this. <laughs> oh, there. <laughs> Great. Okay, I should trust the system, right? <laughs> okay, do we need that? So I'm going to close with a reading that from, and this is from a Jesuit priest who was assassinated in Bolivia. And this is a a meditation he wrote shortly before he was (coughs) killed. But I share this to say, as we do this, you know, the paradox is We have to show up. We have to create the space. But it is not I who do the shaping, who make me into this instrument of God. It's all God. My job is to show up and know that God is going to shape me as an instrument of love and then shape me as I move into the church um, to be God's instrument. So I want you to hear this as we close. There are Christians out there who have hysterical reactions as if the world would have slipped out of God's hands. They act violently as if they were risking everything. But we believe in history. The world is not a roll of the dice going toward chaos. A new world has begun to happen since Christ has risen. Jesus Christ, we rejoice in your definitive triumph. With our bodies still in the breach and our soul's intention, we cry out our first hurrah till eternity unfolds itself. Your sorrow now has passed, your enemies have failed. You are a definitive smile for humankind. What matter the weight now for us? We accept the struggle and the death because you, our love, will not die. We march behind you on the road to the future. You are with us, and you are our immortality. Take away the sadness from our faces. We are not in a game of chance. You have the last word. Beyond the crushing of our bones now has begun the eternal alleluia from the thousand openings of our wounded bodies and souls. There arises now a triumphal song. So teach us to give voice to your new life throughout all the world because you dry the tears from the eyes of the oppressed forever and death will disappear. Amen.